so to keep us from falling apart We'll write songs in the dark And to stop us from fading away We'll write for a better day Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer So you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman All right, welcome to episode two in our Chernobyl and radiation series. Let's talk about then some, just to move back to um, the actual medicine that's practiced day to day. I'm sure there are a lot of misconceptions about radiation when patients come to see you. What are some of those misconceptions um, that maybe even medical students have? Well, that's a good question. Um, I... I have heard so many different things and folks have had so many different experiences. It, it's a little bit difficult for me to sum those into one uh, or a few misconceptions. Well, um, if you want to lead me there. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's start with this. Does anything stand out that was just like, <laughs> oh, wow, I can't believe somebody would ask me that. I hadn't considered looking at it like that before. I don't know if I know the answer to that either. I guess as we're talking about it, I, I think definitely something to consider that it it is very effective treatment, but it isn't without consequences. And, you know, there certainly is a circumstances where the pros and cons of it have to be weighed. Um, But it is very useful as well. Um, It it depends on the type of uh, malignancy that someone has. Uh, It depends on their life expectancy. Uh, It depends on their risk of secondary malignancy, which is always a concern. Um, it depends on their comorbidities. And so all these things get factored to decide, you know, for that particular patient, you know, how to utilize it as a tool. And so it, it's really, it's difficult, I would say, for me to, to sum that up. I know that's not a very good answer to you. <laughs> how about this? Maybe we could take a couple scenarios or, yeah. or specific malignancies that we use it for and, and talk it out because it, it gets there's just a lot of nuance to it sometimes. All right. Let's say somebody has a a vertebral metastasis, um, some spot that you're going to irradiate palliatively. Does that sound like something you would do? (laughs) Yeah. So that's a good start. So um, I guess what I'm getting at too is like, uh, do they come and ask to you like, am I going to be radioactive? Radioactive! Uh, Wait, wait, don't use that. I'm not about to be sued. Can I not be around other people? There we go. That's good. Okay. okay. So, um, no. So, again, most radiation therapy, uh, or at least the vast majority, of it, is going to be a radiation generating machine that creates a photon that travels at the speed of the light. The radiation is on when it's on and it's off when it's off. And so it does its damage, um, but there's no radioactivity left behind. Uh, the main event is the ionization that creates a free radical that damages DNA. Uh, and so that is the kind of the left behind when the radiation is off, but they're not radioactive. radioactive. Not again. No, no, no. I can't afford a lawsuit. Now, that being said, radioactive materials are still used in a variety of circumstances, the two being radiopharmaceuticals, which we talked about a little bit before with I-131 uh, and radium-223 and then um, brachytherapy, which we haven't talked about at all. And that brachytherapy would be uh, some sort of sealed radioactive material that's placed in a patient at a certain location for a period of time in order to more focally give radiation uh, to that area and most commonly used for prostate cancer and cervical cancer. Yes. 
So is that person uh, radioactive? <laughs> that, <laughs> like that's to the, right. To the point where they need to limit their exposure to others? So somebody uh, that would have a radioactive implant would be given very specific instructions about their radioactivity. Now, most of the time that is a temporary implant, so they're not leaving the hospital radioactive. Ah, Chris, Chris, calm down. We can't use that. Um, that wouldn't be the case for permanent prostate seeds, which are um, generally I-125 in the United States. And those give off a, a, a low um, energy. It's a characteristic x-ray um, that delivers the radiation uh, right to the, the prostate. Uh, but generally for those folks, they're, they're radioactive for about four months and they wouldn't be able to have like small children in their lap. Uh, for folks that ingest radiopharmaceuticals, uh, they as well would be given, uh, they would be radioactive um, and would have to limit you know, their contact and, and given uh, specific instructions depending on what radiopharmaceutical is being used. Now, to get a general feel for the range of health effects that we might observe from a very high dose of radiation to a very low dose of radiation, let's consider three situations. If the dose of radiation is high, it's delivered to the whole body, and is given a short amount of time, the potential likely outcome is death. The individual would die. That death can occur within a few days. If the dose is really high, it could happen within a few hours even. And it could take several weeks after a period of severe illness that includes internal bleeding and infections. Now, if the dose is moderate, Individual would develop radiation sickness. The symptoms will appear, but that individual has a good chance to survive. And the chance of survival is better if prompt medical care is provided to the individual. For those who survive this moderate dose of radiation, there will be a higher than expected risk of cancer later in life. So their risk of cancer would be higher than what we expect from average person. If the dose of radiation is low, there will be no radiation sickness. There will be no immediate health effects, no symptoms, and likely there will be no observable health effect later in life either. But statistically, there will be a higher than average risk of developing cancer later in life. So they would carry that small risk of cancer throughout uh, their life. If the dose is really, really low, then that small increase in risk of cancer is so low that we can't measure it, we can't even estimate it. So all, for all practical purposes, that risk is non-existent at that point. So regarding potential health effects of radiation, remember, it's all about dose, which needs to be evaluated in context. On this chart, you will see typical doses from common exposures, including air travel, chest x-ray, or CT scan, compared to what we get from uh, our natural background on an annual basis. You also see the 50% survival dose. That's a dose that would give us 50% chance of survival. The person will have a 50% chance of surviving radiation sickness. And that dose is 4,000 millisieverts. That's equivalent to getting 400 CT scans back-to-back. -back. Particular cancers that stand out as incredibly sensitive to radiation would, um, you said the uh, germ cells and the, the primordial precursors of um, uh, spermatozoa, like, so what, seminomas are they? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, seminomas are very, very sensitive to radiation therapy. Um, myeloma, very sensitive. Uh, lymphomas are, are generally very sensitive to radiation therapy. Um, on the flip side of that, there's some kind of 
traditionally radio resistant um, tumors may or may not be completely true, but melanoma has generally been thought to be a more radio resistant as well as renal cell. Um, osteosarcoma would be another one that's probably the, the most well-known radio resistant tumor. Huh. Why? Because aren't sarcomas, don't they tend to be uh, things that grow pretty fast? Um, I, generally not. So, it, hmm. you know, the other part of radiation turnover is if you think about the um, originating cell type, you know, we're not turning over our our bone all that often. We're not turning over our muscle that often. We're not turning over fat that often. So these places where sarcomas originate, you know, tend to be more radio resistant and more radio tolerant even as normal tissues. So is that a general rule then? Just sarcoma in general is radio resistant? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, probably not because there are some, particularly in the pediatric side, there's some more radiosensitive um, pediatric sarcomas. Uh, and it also can be used particularly with um, kind of as an adjunct to surgery uh, to just to kind of help make sure that per, particularly the periphery of the tumor, um, that margins are adequate or that uh, local um, uh, recurrences are decreased. So not not across the board, but even melanoma and um, renal cell, we use radiation all the time for, for both those diseases as well. Uh, they've just kind of traditionally been thought to be a little bit more radio resistant. I know when I think this is probably the experience of a lot of medical students too. You, you know, you're you're preparing for your OBGYN shelf, and you read about all these cancers, and in the review book it says, you know, treat with chemotherapy or, or treat with radiation. Or I guess is there a general way to think about why something would be why a cancer would be amenable to radiation? Um, over and above, uh, say, chemotherapy or excisional therapy. We kind yeah, of alluded I, um, to some of this, but just to explicate it. From a, if you wanted to just really keep it as simple as possible, yes. you know, uh, any kind of solid tumor, the kind of the breakdown is on presentation, is it curable or not? And that mostly means looking at the stage and for most cancers stages one two and three would be considered curable and stage four would be considered incurable anything that's in the incurable setting you know palliative treatment is oftentimes systemic therapy basically just to keep you know the disease under control with symptom management based on where the disease is with surgery or radiation as needed in the curative setting uh, stages one two and three it really, it, it goes more towards the local management is how is it managed locally. Um, and so for instance, a breast cancer, very amenable to surgery, a lung cancer that's, you know, involving the pulmonary artery, not so much. And so that's where radiation therapy is going to be the local management. Chemotherapy in the curative setting is used differently. It's used either as a radiosensitizer to make radiation more effective or to eradicate any micrometastatic disease that might be there. Um, and that's you know, going to be the rate-limiting issue for a patient if they go through curative therapy. If there's micrometastatic disease somewhere else and they're going to eventually develop metastases, can you give chemotherapy to eradicate that and, and put them back into the curative setting? As far as non-solid uh, malignancies, so leukemias, yeah. for the most part lymphomas, that's going to be simply systemic therapy. Um, and see that I mean that makes sense to me because you can't um, irradiate the the whole 
like uh, blood or um, you wouldn't want to irradiate the, the bone marrow or source for any of these mutated cells, right? But the only time that that is done, um, oh, right. it, there's uh, total body irradiation, which is a, kind of a specialized part of my field, something we don't do at my small community center, but the big academic centers do it, um, is done as an, a part of induction for transplant. And so oftentimes, instead of giving really potent chemotherapy agents that will obliterate bone marrow, that certainly is done. Uh, but you can give some potency of systemic therapy, then also do total body irradiation uh, to try to really eradicate the bone marrow completely before transplant. Wow, that also sounds terrible. That's awful. Yeah, that that does not sound good. Um, and that's where you see a lot of these prodromal effects, um, the nausea and things like that. Frank Bricano reports no more than 3.6 Srontgen. I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest X-ray, so... I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. A fireman was severely burned on his hand by a chunk of smooth black mineral on the ground outside the reactor building. Smooth black mineral. Graphite. There's, there's graphite on the ground. 3.6 Rontgen, which, by the way, is not the equivalent of one chest X-ray, but rather 400 chest X-rays. That number's been bothering me for a different reason, though. It's also the maximum reading on low-limit decimeters. They gave us the number they had. I think the true number is much, much higher. If I'm right, this fireman was holding the equivalent of four million chest X-rays in his hand. There's no place for alarmist hysteria. It's not alarmist if it's a fact. Time for another question. A 31-year-old male firefighter presents to the emergency department following exposure to radiation while he assisted in cleaning up rubble in the aftermath of a fire at a local power plant. His chief complaint is nausea, vomiting, and a severe burn to his hand. These are radiation burns. Their clothes are contaminated. Help me! Though the injury on the hand is quite deep, he claims his gloves remained on the entire time and that he did not immediately notice the injury. He is diagnosed with acute radiation syndrome. Which of the following would be the most likely cause of death for this patient in the future? Is it A, thyroid carcinoma, B, internal hemorrhage secondary to thrombocytopenia, C, pancreatic adenocarcinoma, or D, infection secondary to antibacterial resistance? And the correct answer is choice B, internal hemorrhage secondary to thrombocytopenia. All right, briefly, what do you need to know about this question? Basically, the leading cause of death in an individual with acute radiation syndrome is bone marrow destruction, leading to both internal hemorrhage and infection. Due to the presence of a cutaneous radiation injury, it can be surmised that this patient was exposed to an extremely high level of ionizing radiation. And just to clear up a point that you may be considering based on choice D, which was infection secondary to antibacterial resistance, just note that while the patient would be at an increased risk of death from infection, it would not be due to antibacterial resistance, but due to bone marrow failure. So something to note there about that distractor. So infection secondary to antibacterial resistance. Yes, it is true people can get infections um, that are difficult to treat or um, 
persist as a result of antibacterial resistance. And answer choices on an exam do have to be actually possible, actually true possibilities. They can't say like infections secondary to going outside in the winter without a coat on. Those would be too easy to eliminate. So in this instance, what they're testing is your knowledge of why an infection would be a consequence to acute radiation illness and specifically why death from infection would be caused by exposure to ionizing radiation. And in this case, it's not a lack of antibiotic effect efficacy or resistance of microbes to the particular antibiotic, but rather due to bone marrow failure and compromising the immune uh, cells responsible for fighting infection in the body. All right, so let's go back to our Chernobyl series. So when we talk about, um, I guess, the issue that um, people uh, and is drawn out in this HBO series is really a focus on acute radiation illness. Can we go ahead and kind of discuss some of that? Yeah, I think it it also ties a lot into the therapy side when we think about acute radiation syndrome because we're really looking at you know what are the sensitive tissues uh, at what dose um, do they begin to be affected and then what are the uh, kind of symptoms that we see from that. And so initially, uh, there's this kind of prodromal reaction. And these are really situations where there is a very, very high exposure. I mean, there are very limited uh, historical instances where this has even occurred that mostly around atomic the atomic bombs and Chernobyl uh, with a few other rare things in there. So our knowledge is does come from those uh, circumstances. But the acute Radiation syndrome is generally a upper gastrointestinal symptom of nausea, vomiting. The thought is that there's probably some sort of cytokine release when when these high doses of radiation occur. And we see that as well on the therapy side. I, I generally tell my patients that they don't see or feel or hear radiation on a day-to-day basis. But when folks have to have radiation therapy for things like pancreatic cancer or um, gastric cancer, there can be this um, nausea and vomiting that happens you know, a couple hours, three, four hours after radiation. And oftentimes we'll use uh, things like Zofran prophylactically to avoid that. Zofran is ondansetron. Ondansetron is a serotonin receptor antagonist that decreases vagus nerve stimulation. So when you're looking at that uh, acute radiation illness, with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, does that uh, imply, say, ingestion when talking about something like a nuclear fallout accident? I'm, I'm sure that the mechanism for the, the nausea, vomiting is probably different in the setting of a, a you know, clinical therapy, uh, which is using external beams, right? So gamma radiation, is that all? It's essentially, uh, it would just be x-ray um, because in that circumstance, um, gamma radiation essentially implies that it's a from the nucleus um, versus in the side of therapy, you know, we're taking uh, electrons 
from a power you know company and speeding them up and bouncing them into a tungsten target and creating x-rays of a, of a high energy and so a little bit different in terms of the just the terminology but the same physical process um, yes but there is some similarity between the two for nausea and vomiting after a, a nuclear fallout or something like that I think it would be difficult to know in the circumstances unless you knew what the person was exposed to, because it certainly could be an ingestion, but it also could just be external gamma radiation of a high enough energy to penetrate, you know, to a certain depth. Um, uh, so that's that's kind of the distinction. You'd have to ingest something like an alpha radiation admitting um, isotope or a beta radiation uh, particle, or the the penetrating radiation is the the gamma radiation of a certain energy yes of a certain energy. <laughs> okay. yeah um you know just going back to the old days um you know we use what are called linear accelerators for therapy now again those are of a megavolted strength but uh, you know 50 years ago actually a little longer than that 60 years ago they were more of a, what we call an orthovolted strength which would have been about 500 kv and there was a lot of limitations in that because so much of the radiation is absorbed in the skin at those doses. It's just not able to penetrate deep enough. So the uh, rate limiting organ toxicity was usually some sort of skin effect, which is not the case now. We usually don't see a lot of skin effects from uh, the megavoltage uh, energy. Just because it kind of passes through? That's right. It, okay. it wants to go through. The vast majority actually does pass through the patient. It's just more likely to pass through in between atoms in between uh, electrons than it is to actually interact with an orbital electron. An RBMK reactor uses uranium-235 as fuel. Every atom of U-235 is like a bullet, traveling at nearly the speed of light, penetrating everything in its path, woods, metal, concrete, flesh. Every gram of U-235 holds over a billion trillion of these bullets. That's in one gram. Now, Chernobyl holds over three million grams, and right now it is on fire. Winds will carry radioactive particles across the entire continent. Rain will bring them down on us. That's three million billion trillion bullets in the, in the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. Most of these bullets will not stop firing for 100 years. Some of them, not for 50,000 years. Radiation sickness might sound like something out of a post-apocalyptic horror film, and it often is. Depending on the exposure, it could take minutes to hours before they enter what's called the prodromal stage of ARS. The better pronunciation is prodromal. At this point, they might feel nauseous or vomit or have a fever, headache, or diarrhea. Symptoms like these can happen on and off for a few days, and we're not entirely sure why that happens. The best explanation we have is that radiation somehow activates cells in the gastrointestinal tract to release the neurotransmitter serotonin, and that triggers the brain's vomit center. A similar thing can happen when people get chemotherapy. What's weird about ARS, though, is that after this period of queasiness, people often feel a lot better. This is what's known as the latent stage. And as the name implies, during this phase, it might not seem like there's a lot going on. A person who's been exposed can feel generally healthy, 
but they're not. Oddly enough, this is the stage where cells are actually dying. You see, the cells that die from radiation generally don't die right away. DNA damage mostly becomes a problem when cells go to divide and realize they can't, because the DNA has breaks in it or the coding sequence is wrong. So the length of the latent period partially depends on where the radiation damage occurred and how often the affected cells divide. That's why, when symptoms start to show up, they often appear in places like the intestines, bone marrow, or skin, because those tissues contain cells that divide the most often. Of course, how long the latent period lasts also depends on how strong the dose of radiation was. Higher doses over a shorter period of time mean more damage faster. Now, the latent period might sound similar to the incubation period of other illnesses, where a person doesn't show symptoms, but they can transmit the disease to someone else. Eventually, the body can't compensate for the cell damage anymore. And at that point, the person enters the manifest illness stage. This stage lasts anywhere from a few hours to several months and looks different depending on the kinds of tissues that were damaged. Some forms of radiation syndrome show up in the skin, which can get dry, red, or itchy, or in severe cases can start to blister. Basically, it's the same idea as a sunburn, though potentially a lot worse. Other forms, triggered by smaller doses of radiation, mostly affect the bone marrow, resulting in internal bleeding, a drop in white blood cells, and anemia. All right, and now it's time for a question. A 54-year-old male engineer presents to the emergency department with a chief complaint of a 24-hour history of vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. History reveals that the nuclear reactor at the facility in which the patient works had a malfunction two days prior. After following the appropriate radiation exposure protocol, the amount of ionizing radiation exposure is estimated to be 2.7 gray. Which of the following medication classes are indicated to relieve his gastrointestinal symptoms? Is it A, H2 agonists, B, H1 antagonists, C, H2 antagonists, or D, H1 agonists. And the correct answer here is answer choice C, H2 antagonists. In brief, supportive therapy is recommended for any patient with an estimated ionizing radiation exposure dose of 2 to 3 gray. 2.7 gray, for perspective, is equivalent to about 27,000 chest x-rays at the same time. The supportive recommendation for medications includes both antacids and H2 blockers. And in surveillance, patients should be monitored with complete blood counts to ensure there's no granulocytopenia, which could warrant prophylactic antimicrobial therapy. All right, so that's quick and dirty. Now... Back to the substance of today's episode. And so you had mentioned that, you know, it kind of depends on what the tissue sensitivity is to radiation injury. Um, so this nausea vomiting, is it just gastric or GI tract mucosa gets? I think that that's probably the least understood the acute or the prodromal phase. Um, again, I think there's a thought that it's some sort of cytokine release that causes those uh, symptoms, but I don't think we really know the mechanism of action for the prodromal phase. To take it one step further, there's a latent phase that happens after. And then depending on the dose, there are three kind of discrete ways of death. Uh, the first being a hematologic death, 
the second being a gastrointestinal death, and the third being a kind of cardiovascular and neurovascular death. Uh, and those are dose dependent, and those make more intuitive sense to me um, because then we start to look at, okay, you have a certain um, level of differentiated cells in each organ system um, that are being replaced at a certain interval. And so for uh, particularly lymphocytes, you know, some of those are replaced um, every couple of days. Yeah. And so if you're obliterating the bone marrow on one day, then you can pretty much anticipate that the neutropenia or lymphopenias are going to follow down the line when that next set of differentiated cells is supposed to be replacing the current population. And so you can kind of set your watch to it to say, hey, you know, two, three, four, five days later, um, you, you'll start to see a drop in lymphocyte counts um, and then the patient is at risk of infection and things like that. And so that's going to be with a, a fairly low dose of radiation that that uh, tends to be an issue. Because bone marrow is so rapidly turning over compared to the GI cells and uh, cardiovascular type stuff. That's right. And the, there is also an inherent sensitivity that's different from organ system to organ system. For example, the kind of the, um, excuse me, stem cells for sperm seem to be the most sensitive, uh, probably of all organ systems, but right behind that would be uh, bone marrow. And, and it just doesn't take much radiation to wipe out bone marrow. That all makes sense. So that sort of explains this latent stage then in, in which, you know, they go through this prodrome of, you know, GI illness, um, and then they feel better and they look healthy um, until their body needs to replenish the infection-fighting cells that come from the bone marrow. Um, and then that's when the, I guess, uh, the shit hits the fan in terms of um, the uh, acute radiation illness a few weeks later. So I guess the in, in that series, they kind of allude to what is going to happen down the line for the people who are on the periphery of the disaster versus those who are immediately exposed and some of those who were uh, exposed very close to this nuclear disaster. They died within a few weeks, and there's some pretty horrible kind of uh, uh, drama and uh, makeup that they use to, to illustrate that. But the, uh, I guess, I don't know what I'm asking here, but if you do recover from this latent stage, is it as simple as the amount of exposure one has to predict the outcomes of uh, the patient? It seems to be, yeah. And again, there, there really is, while there is some knowledge on this, it, it's relatively limited. Uh, I think the, the things that are best known would be this hematopoietic syndrome and the gastrointestinal uh, syndrome, uh, just in terms of kind of dose and, and latency. Uh, what's probably a little bit more poorly understood is the kind of rapid death that occurs with real high doses from the um, cerebrovascular syndrome. That's just something that is is only happened in, in so few circumstances that it don't we don't really have a lot of knowledge about that. It's probably from some sort of edematous uh, effect on those tissues, um, but it, it does seem to be very dose dependent in terms of what what we see. Uh, in, in these different syndromes. 
All right, that's it for episode two within our radiation and Chernobyl-focused series. Thanks to Chris Breitigan, the executive producer of this series, and Ike Potter, who is the producer of the main ITV podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to Inside the Boards wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to Enter Shikari for letting us use Radiate off the 2013 LP Rat Race. Check out Enter Shikari wherever you listen to music.